what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Foot Candle Films. Film news and reviews from two guys who really like movies. This episode is brought to you by the Foot Candle Film Society. For a schedule of upcoming screenings and membership information, visit the Society's website at www.footcandle.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. My name is Alan. Across from me at the table is Chris. Hello. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing well. Doing well. Good, good, good. As always, to have everybody here and listening to us as we do uh, record our latest episode of Foot Candle Films. Now, in this show, what we normally try to do is review a couple of films, have some news and review or discussion points about some things happening in the movie industry or projects coming up. And then we always end the show with our recommendation, something that each of us has uh, chosen a film that hopefully you can find online or some way pretty easy that we think you ought to check up on if you have not seen before or maybe have forgotten about. Uh, today, we actually have three films to review, Chris. Are you okay with that? Yeah, you know, last time we did three, we figured why not try to do it again. Yeah, so. we did okay. We managed our time all right. So we're going to go ahead and do three <laughs> uh, three reviews. First off, we'll be reviewing the, ten, the film 10 Cloverfield Lane, followed by Brooklyn, and then The Danish Girl. So going from a uh, uh, thriller, latest blockbuster film to a couple of films that were really talked about back in the Oscar period. And we're just playing a little catch up with those two to make sure we close out 2015 officially. It's only March. I mean, might as well go ahead and close out 2015 officially. And then, like I said, news and our recommendations. So, Chris, if it's okay with you, let's jump right into our first review, which is the first major picture film by Dan Trachtenberg, starring John Goodman and Mary Elizabeth Winstead. 10 Cloverfield Lane. Something's coming. Cloverfield Lane. If you hear the name of this film and you recognize the word in the middle of the title, which is Cloverfield. Now, you may look at this, some of you who have just uh, been living out of the movie theater realm for the past 10, 15 years may not think much about the name of the film, but Cloverfield actually has a little bit of a connection and that Cloverfield was the name of a film, gosh, was it five, six years ago, maybe? Yeah, I'm not sure. It was 2008. It, 2008. 2008. Okay. Oh, wow. Longer. Thank you, so Internet. It was like eight years ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cloverfield, a little background on the film here. So Cloverfield was a film that I remember when they started marketing that film, they kept it as much of a mystery as possible. Like you knew it was some kind of monster creature film. But they did do marketing for it. They did market it. Well, in advance, but even for the longest time, you didn't even really know the name of the film. Do you remember that? Like the trailer yeah. would come out and there wasn't really a name to the film. It was just you knew it was going to be this destructive film about some monster in New York City. Well, they marketed it for a while, but it kept it very much in a J.J. Abrams type of universe of a kind of a mystery box. Like you don't really know exactly what's going on in the film. You never see the creature in any of the marketing. So they kept it very much hidden. Right. 10 Cloverfield Lane took a little bit of a similar approach, but made a few adjustments to the marketing. First off, they just started marketing this film really like seven or eight weeks ago. Right. 
for today's cinema climate, that is unheard of. You got to market a big thriller slash actiony movie at least a year in advance. Here, this movie came out of nowhere two months ago. I mean, I remember seeing the trailer the first time and being like, "Oh my gosh, that's, I guess that's coming out like in Christmas time." It's like, nope, it's coming out in March. It's like, wow, okay, that's pretty crazy. Second, Dan Trachtenberg, first time major feature film director. Uh, we used to follow as part of a uh, podcast series they did, The Totally Rad Show. Yes. Uh, that was a film and video game review show. Dan Trachtenberg was one of the co-hosts of that. So this is his first major motion picture film. And we know that it's connected to Cloverfield through the title. But that's all we know. So we've been told by J.J. Abrams that this is in the same universe as Cloverfield, but that's kind of all he said. So, Chris, a lot of mystery going into the film, a lot of uh, kind of springing it on us two months in advance. And the fact that we kind of knew this director back when, so it's kind of cool to see him making a film. It's got a lot of really cool elements all coming together to make what could be an interesting film experience. So my question to you is, was this an interesting film experience? Did the short attention of marketing span help or hurt this film, do you feel like, in the long run? Wow. Um so it's it's hard for me to unpack the relevance of this film because I did know the director beforehand mm-hmm. um, because not know him personally, although that would have been cool. But like you mentioned, like I'd had, you know, I'd, I'd had exposure to him because of him being on that podcast, Totally Rad Show. So I kind of knew his sensibilities, knew what, mm-hmm. you know, how his creative mind. So when I heard that he had this film, that he was doing a film, I did get a little maybe too excited because okay. I was excited to see his first film. It was an interesting film experience. To answer that question, to boil it down, it was not your typical film experience. Mm -hmm. And I can give a little quick synopsis to the film as well. well, That might be helpful. And we we agreed prior to starting taping that we were going to try to remain pretty spoiler-free for this first part. So So you can listen to us talk about this film, and we're not going to spoil anything. But if we have time at the end of the show and after we're done with the credits – we may stick around for a few more minutes and talk about the film itself from a very spoilery standpoint. Right. But right now you're safe if you have not seen 10 Cloverfield Lane. Basically, the film is about a young woman uh, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She plays a woman named Michelle who is in a car wreck leaving from a domestic situation with her husband, boyfriend, somewhere along those lines. And she gets into a wreck. She wakes up. She's in a basically in a uh, fallout shelter. That is run by John Goodman playing uh, Howard. And at that point, we're, we're kind of thrown into a mystery. Howard claims that the rest of the world is infected by some sort of poisonous gas in the air. So people are dying and you can't go outside. So they're stuck in there. Uh, Michelle doesn't know to believe him or not. And then it turns out there's a third person in the, in the shelter whose name is Emmett, played by John Gallagher Jr., who believes Howard. And that's really all I'm going to kind of leave it at. We have a lot of tension and intrigue and mystery within the shelter and not keeping the audience knowing, not knowing is what Howard's telling you true outside of the shelter and what's his true intentions and all that. So anyway, that, that's all I can say from a non-spoilery standpoint. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the things we can talk about with this film. Um, let me ask you, Chris. So you had, you said you had an interesting experience, but it sounds like you might have been, a little let down from some of your expectations. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. Can I ask you this? Yes. Um, if the sure. film had stopped before the last 15 minutes, would you have come away with a more positive experience than you did at the very end of the film? 
In other words, I'm just asking you, did the last 15 minutes hurt or help or do nothing for the film? Right. Um, and again, without spoiling, just want to yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, I don't it, think it, it, yeah. It hurt it. It did hurt it? Okay. It did, yeah. Um, well, let me, let's start with the positives. Sure. Can we do that? Absolutely. The positives about this film, because I've, I've got some positives. Um, I will say generally, I like this film. Um, although the last 15 minutes made me come out saying, eh, it was fine, where if it had gone a different direction those last 15 minutes, I probably would have come out loving this film. I will say John Goodman, I thought was outstanding. Mm -hmm. I really thought his performance was good. I think I even told you after I saw the film before you'd seen it, that for me, John Goodman to me is always good. Sure. I mean, even in films that I didn't really care as much for Trumbo, the film that just came out last year, the film was okay. I mean, it was fine. It was nothing great. He was really good in it. Argo, another film that I thought was pretty good, not great. He was really good in that. Um, But to me, his film roles, The Big Lebowski and uh, Barton Fink, (laughs) are the top two. Sure. This is probably now number three for me as far as like what I feel like has been some of his best performances. Hmm. Because I just feel like he just knows how to play this character, Howard, so, so good. Um, So I will say more for a positive, I thought he was absolutely outstanding. And actually, and we can talk about this in the spoiler part, (laughs) that's probably why... I didn't care for the last 15 minutes as much. I'll explain that more when we get there. But, okay. Um, I will say Mary Elizabeth Winstead, I thought was also very good as Michelle, lead actress. I mean, in fact, all three of the actors I thought were really good. And I thought the first 80 to 90% of the film was really, really well done. Great Hitchcockian tension, uh, a lot of intrigue, a lot See? of just, you know, a lot of misdirection in some places. I thought it was really well done. Throwing that word around which I'd heard thrown around. That's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty heavy adjective Mm -hmm. Hitchcockian. And having heard that going in, that didn't help how I saw this. film. Okay. So you already had a little bit of some expectations going in. Yeah. I mean, I was excited because like I said, I don't know Dan Dan Trachtenberg at all, but it'd be like if you heard somebody you knew in high school made their first movie, like, Oh cool. I can't wait to see what they do. So I kind of had that little kind of giddy excitement I'd heard the whole Hitchcockian adjective thrown around. So I liked the movie, but like you're saying, kind of that last, I don't know, third, but the Mm -hmm. last 15 minutes or so um, kind of threw me a little bit. And, but to get, let's refocus on the positives. Like you said, the three performances were definitely strong. And, you know, for a film that, yeah, this is a really small cast. That's important because mm-hmm. if you have a weak link, it's going to really stick I mean, out. The, every scene had one of these three characters. Right. In it, so you kind of have to like buy all three characters mm-hmm. to make it work. Right. And it was cool with somebody that's, you know, you've seen John Goodman hundreds of times. And of course he's good. You kind of expect him to be good. But Mary Elizabeth Winstead, I think the only thing I've ever seen her in was false. Mm. Other than this, I'm not sure. But like, she's never been one that I've recognized her. Really, her name's like, oh yeah, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Did you see uh, Scott Pilgrim? Um, yeah, I think yeah. she was the, the. Was she the girlfriend? Yeah, the I think main she was the, okay. the the main lead girl in that film. Uh, see, I don't she's really... had a lot of other supporting parts. I think she was the lead in the uh, the the remake of the Thing, which I never saw. Oh, I um, never saw that either. But uh, this is the this and faults are the two yeah biggest leads I've seen. And they in. you know both really strong yeah. things from her. Good. Actually, as far as as far as better roles and like more standout, I may say that I actually think faults as far as her performance may have mm-hmm. been better. Could have been. Um, I mean, it's but, a little more interesting a role. Sure. 
in faults than it was here. Something that jumped out at me, which John Gallagher, who plays mm-hmm. Emmett, the whole time I was looking at him, I'm like, I feel like I've seen you somewhere before. Where have I seen you before? Yeah. And then finally, you know, thank you, IMDb. He was in Short Term 12. That's correct. Like, he was the boyfriend. Right, yeah. right. Um, yeah, really like good Larson and everything. So I'm really excited that these guys are both, I feel like they're kind of up and coming. Not that they're like 15 or anything. They're older, but yeah. they're like both been in this movie now with John Goodman, who's mm-hmm. really good. It's getting a lot of money and everything. And I'm really happy because I think both of them are capable of doing yeah. really cool things. So it's, it, was, it was good to see them in that. I think for it to be... For it to be what, for it to be what it was, and that last third that you've kind of mentioned, it was just disappointing because I think it had some interesting potential, mm-hmm. and then they were like, "Okay, now we're just going to kind of end it." Well, yeah. And, and let me hit one last positive, sure. and then I do want to talk about oh, the negative. I've, I've got a cool positive too. Okay, it won't yep. ruin anything. Sure, go for it. <laughs> um, the editing of the opening. Not the very beginning, but like basically the titles, how the oh, titles yeah, the come positive. on when yep. she gets in the wreck that you've mentioned. I was like, whoa, where is this going? What is what is happening? Yeah. thought that was cool. And then um, the very the end of the film, the credits before they get to like the scroll, which a scroll is just a scroll. Mm-hmm. But the way they do, which did remind me of Hitchcock. Actually, if you're going to say besides the suspense thing, like the titles of it to me mm-hmm. were very like Vertigo or Psycho. How they, yes. you know, basically the letters kind of bleed into one another, and but just black and white text. The way they did that, I thought was really cool, and I re- I really liked that. That was a very like 1960s, very mm-hmm. retro way to do the titles, not digital looking at all. Just very, I, I really really liked that. Cool. So Good. that's that's a positive. So, so I mean. I will say, I, I really thought the first 80% of this film was great. I was really digging it. I like films that take place in a very confined space. That's why, uh, I don't know why, but films that are in submarines, I think, are just amazing. Because it's just, you just you feel the tension of being confined in your space. And you knew that you really can't go anywhere. And I think if you really want to build a tense movie, that's the way to do it. This fallout shelter, yes, it's a lot bigger than your typical fallout shelter. It had like three or four rooms and hallways and all that. But you still knew you couldn't go anywhere. I mean, that to me adds such a layer of tension to a movie. Um, And the fact that it was just the three characters and the interplay between them was so important. I really did love everything up to a certain point. (laughs) So (laughs) without getting into spoilers, let's just say on the negative side, I'll start this off. I thought the last 15 minutes of this film lifted from a completely different movie. Right. It wasn't that it was a completely different bad movie. Because there are some elements of that last 15 minutes I liked. But what I hated is that I felt like once that moment happened to lead into the ending of the film, it dropped everything that had happened before it. Right. It kind of fell away. It just... Poof, gone. And now here's a whole new thing for 15 minutes to close out the film. And it was disappointing because I was loving everything up to that point so much that it just felt like it was just all abandoned and dropped off. I will say the rumors I've heard and the the news reports I've heard is that this film had originally a different ending. Huh. And the ending was changed to fit it into this, quote, Cloverfield universe. And See? I think that's the biggest problem with this film that I've got. This is why that's what kept me from saying I really honestly Did you hear that before or after you after. saw it? Okay. Yeah. No, I did not know anything about a different ending afterwards, but I've read since then that the film originally had a different ending and during the spoiler part I'll be happy to tell you what that original ending was going to be. Okay. I think it would have been much much better. 
but supposedly it got shoehorned into this Cloverfield name and universe. It was not originally meant to be. And I think that makes the biggest difference because I think it's very, very obvious that that last 15 minutes was not the original intent of the film. That's my gut feel from it. And I, I, I think the news reports have backed me up on that. So Interesting. That's my problem with the film. Up until that point, I had very, very few problems. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the same page with you. I'm, I, I, my problems is that last little bit. And I felt, which apparently that's ringing true, that it was kind of shoehorning it into Cloverfield Universe, which the whole yep. thing is, if they hadn't, well, the, we'll get in that spoiler. We'll, yeah. I'll, I'll save yeah. that for that. <laughs> it's really tough to talk about this yeah, film without is. spoiling it's guys. Tough. So that's why our review is not going to be as in-depth as some other ones may be. Uh, suffice it to say, I will sum it up this way. I did walk away enjoying the film. I was more frustrated by the end than anything. And I guess it was more of a, I went from loving the film to just thinking it was okay by the time I walked out of the theater. There is uh, some visuals that I thought were really, really cool. I did like the opening credits and the way they kind of splice that together editing wise. I thought the cinematography for it being inside this bunker was really good. I thought the the close-ups on faces was really well done. Mm -hmm. There is a shot, the last shot of the film. I know it's in that last part of the film that we're going to talk about later. The very last frame, the very last shot you see, wide shot, lightning shot, Mm -hmm. I thought was really cool. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, it just didn't fit the rest of the film. But I did like the shot on uh, on its own. So there are moments of the film, even in that last part, I really thought were pretty well done. Yeah, my whole hang-up with the film is just that last 15 minutes, and just it didn't fit for me. So Okay. Sounds like, yeah, we're pretty much on the same page. It may have, I think I liked it a little more than you did. Yeah, it sounds like maybe you I think you probably it. went in with more expectations. I waited I too long in, to see it. I went in thinking it's a first-time director. Sure. It's like one step above an art school project is kind of how I was viewing it when I went in. Okay. And I did not know if they were really going to try to shoehorn it into Cloverfield or not, or just use the name. So I went in with a lot less expectations than probably you did. Okay. Um, I think your expectations might've hurt your experience a little bit. Yeah, I'm afraid Um, so. Anyway, we will talk more about this at the very end of the show. (laughs) I will say, I think it's worth checking out. Sure. Just understand we do have some misgivings with, some of the choices made at the end of the film. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I do think for John Goodman's performance, it's been a while since we've had a really good kind of intense, scary performance on film. And if you like movies like thrillers or whatever, this is a good one. It's a good one to see. Just just know it throws a little curveball towards the end or changes the tone a little bit. And we have some concerns about that, but we'll talk about that after the show's over. Okay, Fair enough. let's move on to two films that I guess we don't really have to worry about spoiling. I think they're yeah. both pretty simple ones to describe. <laughs> let's go first into one that was nominated for Best Actress, didn't win for Sears or Ronan, but still a film we wanted to check out and review, and that film is Brooklyn. Dear Rose, I miss you and Mother and think about you every day. The most important news is that I have a job and I'm in a boarding house. I was glad to see you finally got some letters from home today. <laughs> I wish that I could stop feeling that I want to be an Irish girl in Ireland. Homesickness is like most sicknesses. They were pass. Alan, with period pieces, they can kind of be a mixed bag for me. I think also for you, maybe. Uh, yeah. Costume dramas of that ilk. Mm. Then throw in with that, which a lot of times happens, 
romance, you know, that romance movies, right. not typically my, my bag, not really, not really in for him. We talked about far from the Madden crowd recently. Sure. Um, that was, you know, an example of kind of a period romance that I just had a lot of problems with. It just seemed like watching, which I a, liked by the way, well, I it was like it, watching a soap opera. I think we actually me. had a little bit of a different disappointment <laughs> on that film. Yeah. So, yeah. So Brooklyn, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, was nominated for a uh, best actress Oscar for Saoirse Ronan. She plays an Irish immigrant lands in 1950s Brooklyn, where she quickly falls into a romance with a local guy who's a plumber, but then her past catches up to her and she has to go home for a trip to Ireland and things kind of complications arise, complications <laughs> arise to try to keep her there or try yeah. to, you know, um, so all that being said with that kind of, you know, real quick plot, dis, you know, description there, do you, how did you feel? You, did this movie work for you? Did you like it? How, you know, as someone who yeah. doesn't typically go in for it? Yeah, this is not the film I would have, I would have picked out to say, I really am looking forward to seeing this, but it, it surprised me in that I did enjoy it uh, more than I expected to. I think, the performances are all really strong, and I think that makes a big difference. The fact that I actually cared about the two lead characters, the 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 the, the guy and the girl, mm-hmm. I thought were both really really good, strong performances by by two younger actors. You know, the the authenticity of it all worked as well. I think you know, getting on the boat to go from Ireland to New York and the immigrant experience and the kind of the culture of of Irish immigrants in New York. And how they all kind of have to help each other out a little bit and spend their social time together just to acclimate everybody. You know, all that was really interesting to me. And I think it was done very authentically. And, you know, the story itself, eh, it's not, it, to me, it wasn't the best story in the world. I mean, I think it had a few gaps and, and a little bit of some logic here and there. And, you know, motivations. Do I really feel like the characters would have done exactly this? Eh, maybe, maybe not. But from a acting and, uh, capturing that time period, I, I think it was really good. It was an enjoyable film. I had a good time with it. So, yeah, how, how do you feel? I, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would, just okay. because don't typically go in for period pieces. Period pieces that are romances is just, and it wasn't even trying to. I mean, I guess it was covering the whole immigration issue. So it was trying to talk about you know that kind of. You know, people coming over here, leaving lives behind, the struggle of that. But, you know, it focused – I don't mean to interrupt you, yeah. but it, it, what I liked about it is it didn't try to make any kind of political statement about immigrants. That's true. It focused more on what immigrants go through with regards to leaving their family, like you said, and acclimating to a new culture. I'm so glad they didn't try to push in any kind of political, social commentary on whether or not we should be accepting of immigrants or anything in that. That would have really turned me off. Yeah. I think the fact that it was pretty much, yeah, this is what the immigration process is like. This is what the emotions that somebody could go through when they leave their home and come to another country like this. And that part of it I thought was really well done. So, sorry. Yeah, no, and it it was. And I I think I was impressed with how I didn't feel like it was overly sappy with with the romance. Um, I liked, really thought, this, the star of it to me, yeah, Saoirse Ronan was good. Um, but I really liked the cinematography in the yeah, film. Yeah, it was a pretty film. And uh, it was pretty, you know, the colors were really vibrant. And then the way they shot some different sequences, the one that I can recall off the top of my head was, at the beginning, Saoirse Ronan's character, she's in Ireland, she hasn't left for America yet, and she goes to this dance. And she doesn't really want to be there, she goes with her friend, and her friend leaves her and she goes off to dance with a guy. And so she's kind of standing there isolated and you see the emotions kind of running through her mind about how, even though she didn't say anything, it's just, you know, it's on her face. 
and she kind of runs through it like, you know, I'm leaving, I'm going away. You can tell she's kind of getting upset. And then instead of cutting to a different shot, it lingers on her for a while. Mm. Oh, yeah, and then that. she leaves the frame and mm-hmm. the frame kind of holds her like a second or two. And then they go to a different shot. So it was just interesting kind of like, you know, her choosing to leave the frame, her choosing to leave Ireland, you know, different little things. And there were instances of that elsewhere in the film that I thought it was really it was really well done. So that's, yeah. that, that kind of stood out to me, a lot of the cinematography. and the, mm. It just was a strong part of the well, movie. I'm remiss in saying, I, I, I mentioned nominated for Best Actress. I completely forget all the time it was nominated for Best Picture, too. Okay. Which well, I know with well, eight films, sometimes things get there's lost. two or three of them you kind of forget that are nominated. But yes, this was nominated for Best Picture. Um, I, I thought maybe eh, maybe it didn't deserve best picture nomination i don't know was it really one of the top 8 films of the of the of um, in the year i don't know it was fine it was a good movie i enjoyed it i enjoyed it like you said more than i expected to and i do think the performances were all pretty strong but you know the story itself i mean of course you know she she leaves ireland she comes to america falls in love with america has a reason to go back home and then the question becomes, does she come back or what's kind of the, the choices she makes? I, I thought at that point, the story lost me a little bit because I, I just didn't know if I followed along with the choices and decisions being made by the lead character. Well, so I was a little, little distanced from it at that point. Um, it, yeah, I liked everything that happened in America. You know, I liked yeah. the first part of in Ireland. I liked her coming over to America. I liked mm-hmm. all that stuff. When she went back to Ireland – there's there's something that she chooses not to reveal, mm-hmm. and I don't really understand why she chose not to reveal that. Yeah, that's my problem. And that that kind of made not that the things that happened in Ireland. You know, people want her to stay. I got that, mm-hmm. and that all part actually, if they'd if she'd have gone ahead and revealed that piece of information and that like, but they would have still been pulling her to stay. It was like a horror movie almost, which was kind of strange. <laughs> Not that in blood was guts were everywhere, but it was like all these. It was like the town was turning against her and trying to pull her back yeah. in, and so it was just like, in a way, you're just like, wow, everybody's like conspiring to keep her there. You know, it was kind of like, I don't know, it was like it was village, of the, village of the damned, and yeah. it was kind of a really interesting thing, but like. Because that one key information, you're just like, ah, I don't, I don't buy that she. It was a little too convenient yeah, story wise right. to have her not reveal that to progress the story and the plot the way they wanted to. Right. And I also hated the way too that I mean another gentleman is introduced back in Ireland, and I think I know they were trying to play probably trying to play it very realistic that they wanted it to be someone who's a good person and you like and all that, but at the end of the film, you kind of think about it, you're like. It kind of sucked. I mean, you know, the way it all went down. Oh, all because of her one decision to not share some piece of information. Right. Uh, and then not to respond to it and going back. You know, it, it, it was all a couple of choices she made. I felt like compounded the plot the way they story they wanted it to. But it didn't make me like her as much in that no, last half of the film. And actually, up until that point, you're oh, like, she was great. your team's here, Sharon. Yeah. And then, you know, she made Then she like, gets to Ireland, you're like, why are you doing this? Why are you not saying this? Why are you not when, doing this? Maybe when she withholds it at first, you're like, well, okay. But then it keeps kind of going down a road. You're like, really? You're yeah. not going <laughs> to... That that's where it's just kind of bothered me a bit. Yeah. Now, granted, I think the film ended nicely. Yes. I, I liked the way it ended. It did. But getting to that ending was just a little more convoluted then I think it really would have been naturally. I guess that was my big hang-up on the Well, film. and there again, not that we can really spoil this movie, but she decides not to reveal a piece of information. To the movie's credit, 
Yeah. And I guess it's based on a book. So she didn't reveal the piece of information, but there were certain things she could have done because she hadn't revealed this piece of information that would have made me like her character a lot less. Mm. And she did kind of, yeah, you know, she kept it annoyingly close to the vest, right. but she could have done some stuff that was really, oh, sure. no, so, she, she went up to the line of you <laughs> not liking her as a character at all, right? but she didn't get there. And, I get the conflict, and I understand they did a good job of showing that on, on screen. But I just, yeah, my whole thing was just the couple of decisions she made in the latter half of the film bothered me. Sure. Um, but I think it was a great-looking film. I think it was a very well-acted film. I thought it just, again, the authenticity of it. I love, if you're going to do a period piece, make it to where I can really look at it and feel like I'm in that time period. Don't sure. give me anything that is forced or fake in any way. And I think this film really did a good job with, with, with capturing 1950s Brooklyn and the immigration process as much as it did. Some of the things that I liked about it, um, that we, the performances were good, the, you know, Saoirse Ronan, of course, but some of the supporting cast, Mm -hmm. um, Jim, Jim Broadbent as the priest that was was in America, the Irish priest. Mm -hmm. So I I liked him. Julie Waters is the mother Mm -hmm. of, of kind of this girl, not a girl's home, but it's a, it's a boarding house yeah. where girls can come over and they stay there. She, I really liked her. Mm-hmm. She was really funny um, and amazing in that part. And then, you know, the girls, the supporting girls that were also at the boarding mm-hmm. house, I liked them. And actually the one in particular, there's a new girl that comes in <laughs> because, you know, girls come and go. And so this older woman leaves, this older girl that was at the boarding house leaves, this younger girl comes in. I wish I could remember her character's name or even the actress, but I can't. But anyways, she comes in, and to me, she was like a scene stealer because she was really like awkward and also very annoying. Yes. But I loved her. She was like amazing. And then Saoirse Ronan's character, Eilish, I think that's how you're supposed to say her name. Yeah, Eilish. <laughs> Ellis, uh, she yeah. goes to she you know is supposed to kind of show this girl around and you know being as nice as she is she still doesn't like this new girl mm-hmm. <laughs> and that just uh, I, I I loved I loved that character so they had they had little things like that that I really and then there's she you know the boy that she falls in love with he's like a plumber by trade mm-hmm. he eventually takes her to meet his family <laughs> yeah. and there's a young, his youngest brother and his youngest Hilarious. brother is amazing. Yeah. You know, you could, he plays kind of the annoying, really smart kid. And you could think that's a very like Jerry Maguire type thing to do and very, but it's, it's less cloying oh, and yeah, it's played no, just right. No, and the way really he ends good. up helping that character yes. later in the movie, like it's just, it's done really, really well. No, no, there's so many elements of the film that were really well done and really good. Um, again, the story, I think, took a few unfortunate turns and made some unfortunate decisions. But overall, the film, I thought, was was great and a lot more uh, a lot more enjoyable than I expected, for sure. Yeah. I, You know, if Valentine's Day hadn't already come and gone a long time ago, a good I would say it was a good fact because, you know, yeah. it's it's not that bad for, you know, for me to say that. that for Chris Fry to say that yeah. this period romance film is not that bad. Yeah. That's a very, very that's high claim. So, you know, take that take that for what it is. Right. Good. So that's Brooklyn. Uh, you know, the director on this is not anyone I'm familiar with. Uh, John Crowley. He's made yeah. a few other films, but nothing I'm really familiar with. I will say Nick Hornby wrote the screenplay, which I do. Yeah, you know, here we go. Nick Hornby, uh, High Fidelity. Uh, he also did um, About a Boy, which mm-hmm. is a, a film I really, really like. All based on a, on a novel, but Nick Hornby did, did adapt the screenplay, which I thought was great. And I so. think maybe some of the 
some of the way the dialogue was framed, maybe you could see a little bit of Hornby's handprint on it and just, I don't know, helped really bring the film. No, it was definitely dialogue was pretty sharp in a lot of places and really well done. So that sounds a lot like Nick Hornby to me. So, so that's Brooklyn. It is out on iTunes and Amazon and everywhere else online digital rental. So you don't have to wait for it to come to your city. It is available to you online now. So we do say, go check it out. All right. For our third and final review, before we get on to other parts of the show, we do have the latest film by uh, Mr. Tom Hooper of the uh, King's speech uh, and I think he also did the Les Mis adaptation on film a few years ago. Okay. Uh, his latest film starring uh, Eddie Redmayne and Alicia Vikander, it is The Danish Girl. Exactly what happened last night? There was a moment when I wasn't me. There was a moment when I was just... Lily. But Lily doesn't exist. We were playing a game. Something changed. I think Lily's thoughts. I dream her dreams. She was always there. I need my husband. I need to hold my husband. Are you all right? The fact is, I believe that I'm a woman. And I believe it too. Eddie Redmayne plays, uh, well, Lily Elba. And uh, his wife, Gerda Wegner, is played by uh, Alicia Vikander. And we have the story here of really the first groundbreaking journey of someone going to become transgender. Um, this is taking place in, in Denmark, I assume. And it is inspired by, it's, it's loosely based on the story of the real, real characters. That's one thing I did learn afterwards. It was loosely based and they are using that word loosely because oh. I don't think it quite followed exactly the same path. Okay. Um, Interesting. But it is real people who, you know, uh, Lily did go through a transgender operation Um this story is really talking about that that very courageous move and the impact that it had on his at the time wife at the time he decided to make this change. Um, both Eddie Redmayne nominated for Best Actor, Alicia Vikander nominated for Best Supporting Actress, which she did win for this film. Tom Hooper, uh, The King's Speech is the one he's probably the most known for film wise he made several years ago uh, directing this film. And uh, so, Chris, you know, Eddie Redmayne. He won last year for The Theory of Everything, which Correct. was the uh, Stephen Hawking film. Um, and then he also did Jupiter Ascending. Yes. Uh, which I know you've seen. I have not seen. I have. Uh, and now he's doing this film. You've got three roles back to back. Very big roles. I mean, roles that take a big acting job, either from a physical standpoint or just in Jupiter Ascending. It's an over-the-top standpoint. So just let's start this review with... Eddie Redmayne, because of course he is the main guy in this film and the main character and all. Um, right. Where where do you fall on Eddie Redmayne? Is he a, a real talent for us at this point? Do you feel like he brought his A game to this film, or do you feel like that maybe he's relying on certain acting ticks and traits to carry him through these roles? I mean, Eddie Redmayne, you were good in my week with Marilyn. Oh yeah, I forgot all about that. Um, he was in that one. He, he was. He is good. I think he is a good actor. Um, but in such a showy role, I think in a role that is a showy role, because like, you know, theory of everything, he's got to be Stephen Hawking. He's got to, you know, go through this transformation of having this horrible thing happen to his body and everything. And I think not just maybe decisions that he makes could be a little bit more subtle and they end up being very showy. 
Um, now, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you're on Yeah, page. I think you so, read my mind here. So, Danish girl, um, obviously, you know, you are a man. You make a decision that, hey, this isn't, you know, I, my body, I've always felt like I'm a female. So that's going to be kind of a, and it was the first transgender thing to happen in Denmark in like the 20s or whatever. So, yeah, that, you know, it's going to be very, not a showy performance, but it's going to be a very, you know, struggle performance. And it's going to be a combination of both emotional and it, physical acting. Thank you. Yeah, it's going to be an emotional, physical thing. But I felt sometimes that he, I don't know, just sometimes he was kind of reaching and he could have played it. Mm. He didn't have to dial it all the way up to 11. Yeah. <laughs> and I felt, like, I felt like he did. And um, I'm completely with you. I, I'll tell you right away. I'll just, I'll sum this whole perception of this film up for you. For, for everybody listening, if you – to me, the two lead acting jobs on this really frustrated me. Vikander did? Yes. Really? I thought Vikander's performance was also just over the top oh, too much, too much. Now see, I don't, I don't feel that no, way. No, I did. And I've seen the film twice. And okay. it grated on my uh-huh. nerves more the second time than it did the first time. <laughs> okay. It was, it was just so – well, I'm going to do that. just so like this tone of just, I'm going to be, I play this aloof character for most of the film and I'm strong and independent and blah, blah, blah. And it was just so thickly laid on. I liked her so much more next Machina because that was a, such a nuanced performance. Yeah. And, and I think a restrained maybe, performance. And maybe the fact that she's playing opposite Eddie Redmayne, who I was also kind of annoyed by because I felt like he was playing these same verbal and uh, speech ticks as he goes through the role hmm. that just felt like we're just too much. And it was just too reaching and uh, going a little too far in some scenes where he didn't have to. Mm-hmm. The story itself is important enough, right? The story is interesting enough. And I will say, I thought the direction and the story really good. It's the two lead actors that just, Oh, that yeah, just bothered I am, me. For I am. It. I, and again, I've only seen it once, but I, I would have to go back and watch again because I, I really liked the candor. Um, I just thought she was too showy in every scene she was in. It was really, just, and maybe that's part of the character. Maybe it's part of the person, uh, the, uh, Gerda. Maybe that's how she was really in life. It's just this really big presence when she's talking to people, and everything is kind of a pronouncement when she makes it, and this little kind of sarcastic tone to everything she does. But after a while, it was just, ah, oh, it was just, it was a little much after a while. I huh. think just watching it alongside Redmayne for me was just a little too, too much. much between the two of them. Huh. This okay. is this story carried itself, and I thought the direction of it was really, really strong. So I just I would have been okay with two slightly more toned down performances. Can you call out a particular scene that you thought was really showy for her? Well, I know when they when they sneak off together early in the film to go um, go through the wardrobe at the ballet house. Okay, and it's like a little bit of a montage, just a little bit. They're trying on different things, and just every movement was just this theatrical movement of hers and just she's pulling out different pieces and she's kind of whipping her head around as she's looking at him and it was all just so showy and just so over the top for me um there were a lot of other scenes like that but it just it just got to be a bit much um well i i see it's interesting i got irritated i was irritated with her character Mm. but not with her as an actress. Well, maybe I, was, I, was, I was irritated with her character because, you know, they are husband and wife. Right. Okay. And he, she, now granted, this is based on some of the stuff that may not be exactly true. You right. say it's based on the story. Loosely. She, I feel story, like yeah. she encourages him 
to put on dresses sure. and do all that. She kind of pushes him down this path. Not that he it's not like he was saying, no, no, yeah, please yeah, don't. Buddy. But she kind of pushes him down this path. And when he starts to really embrace it, she then was like, she became a little unsupportive or kind of like, what are you doing? And like some of that stuff, I was kind of like, yeah, but you're the person like, but that was all character based. That was an actress. So I got a little frustrated because then I felt really, I don't know. I I was okay with that only because I felt like, I felt like she was being playful and she was wanting the relationship to be playful early on. I don't think she realized or if she did, it was very subconscious that this would actually trigger any feelings and emotions that maybe he's been keeping repressed for a number of years. Um, that I, I thought that was an interesting struggle is that here's a woman who was kind of being very flippant and very, Hey, yes, why don't you dress up and that would be fun. And this will be a good way you can go to this event and nobody recognize you. And I think when she realized that, Whoa, I, I think she's always known. And she even alluded to it at one point talking to somebody else, an old friend of, of, uh, of Lily's from when they were growing up saying, you know, there was always, he was always a little more, in tune with his feminine side. She made some passing comment about he's right. always been a little bit more on the, on that level. So I think in a way she probably subconsciously knew that there was something underlying under the surface. And I think once she realized that she kind of helped bring it to light a little bit more by making him the focus of the paintings and all that, I think she felt saddened that she had kind of let been the one that kind of instigated it. But at the same time, she can't be sad about it because that's really who he is. Well, He's getting to be who he really feels some, like he should be. Something there again, too, that I found fascinating and now knowing that it's not completely how it happened in real life, which when you see a movie like this, it's kind of hard to, I know. it's kind of hard to know anyway. And like just judging on the movie, but I thought the movie could have investigated it a little more mm-hmm. um, to my, there again, I've only watched it once to my understanding they were both artists. Yes. He, who, you know, Einar is his name, but then he turns into Lily. Right. Um, he was successful. Mm-hmm. She was not. Right. Then she gets on this thing where she starts painting him as, as, a, a, woman, as a woman dressed in Lily. like, right. called Lily. Then her career starts to take off. Mm-hmm. Then he starts to embrace this life of being Lily and her struggle of, seemingly the way the movie played it was then she starts to struggle with the fact that you like, he's turning into Lily and I don't really want that. I want a husband, but yet she's having all this fame. So it's like you're having fame at a price and that, you know, they don't really, but I thought that was really, but that was really interesting. And then like, was it a choice? Like, I don't know. Like some of no. some of that was a little bit more interesting. Well, that's than why, that's why the story into. to me, I thought was really, really interesting. I, I mean, and there's one scene, I will call out both actors, there's one scene I thought that was really done well, acting-wise. Okay. It's the scene, uh, Lily's meeting with a series of doctors throughout the middle portion mm. of the film. Right. And each one is, you know, it was showing you a lot of the stereotypes that existed at the time. Well, obviously he's... Um, there's something wrong he's, with he's him. He's got a mental issue. Right. The one scene where they're about to come after him with a straight jacket, you know, and, and admit him. I mean... Right as he's sitting in the office talking about his issue. He's schizophrenic. And they're like, oh, well, hold on. I need to go talk to somebody. He's like running back down the hallway with a straitjacket. It's terrifying to watch some of those scenes. The last doctor he meets, the one who's actually going to help him with a surgery, when they're sitting down and talking, the three of them, and the doctor is very clearly saying, I can do this. I can perform this surgery. But once you do this, he's looking at Gerda. He says, you no longer have a husband. Right. And the moment, if you watch both of the actors there, um, 
they're describing biologically what is going to happen to Lily. Yeah. And Lily's face and expression of just almost like, oh, my God, I can finally be free. Mm-hmm. I do think Eddie Redmayne knocked that scene out. That was really great. And then Gerda played me you know, Vikander. The fact that you can tell in her mind, it's like, I'm going to lose my husband, you know, when this happens. I do not have a husband anymore once this happened. It's her, but she was still saying, yeah, well, this, this is what we've got to do. You know, it's like that scene really worked for me because I just felt like that's where we really saw both those characters and we understood what they're wrestling with. But one of them sees relief. The other one scared and upset that they're losing something but knows it's the thing they've got to do. Right. That scene was really well acted and I really liked it a lot. I, I thought that was a, that is a good scene, especially mm-hmm. for Redmayne. And I, I guess I felt like Vikander was kind of at that level all along. So it's interesting that you felt she felt I just felt like short. she was more of a real human in that scene. Where mm-hmm. just early, the first half of the film... And again, it may be the aloofness of the real uh, Gerda Wegner, you know. But I just... Uh, <laughs> again, I just thought the performances were just... Both of them dialed up a lot higher than they needed to be. And I didn't think the film needed those showy performances. I think the film, the story, and the directing were strong enough as it was. So, um, Okay. Overall, I thought it was fine. I didn't really like it. You know, I thought it was a fine movie. It's just the acting just troubled me. And uh, if it had been a little more toned down performances in the two leads, I'll probably really, really, really respond to this film pretty well. Okay. So you're summing up your. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I feel the same about the movie overall. I'm maybe a little bit higher on Vikander's performance. Sure. So yeah. I, I thought it was deserving and best supporting actress. Okay. So, mm-hmm. um,. I do not think she should. I mean, the one thing I will say about The Hateful Eight is Jennifer Jason Lee was pretty impressive in the film, I thought, even though you and I both did not care for the film much at all. So. Yeah, she, she, she was good. Yeah, so I guess Danish Girl, eh, okay movie, was irritated by Redmayne like you, but yeah. I, I think Vikander was deserving. So, so I will say I, I liked Brooklyn better than The Danish Girl. I do too. Uh, I'll which surprised me because I probably would have felt going in, I might have felt the opposite way, but I did like Brooklyn better. Uh, than the Danish Girl. It's, we're kind of looking at two period period films, pieces you know, that were both Oscar nominated films. So both had a lot of costume stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, that's so. true. So I will say Tom Hooper's direction I thought was really interesting. He's got a way of framing shots where sometimes we're even like the head of the main character is like off in a corner, hmm. and you're like you spend more of this frame looking at the surroundings and looking at the ceiling and looking at the expansiveness of a hallway. And I just I like that a lot. It's a little. A little different way of shooting things. The shots inside of their their studio apartment were also really interesting because it's just these big open spaces mm-hmm. that he's playing with. So, so that's our reviews: Ten Cloverfield Lane, Brooklyn, and The Danish Girl. Positives to share on all three. There are varying degrees of positiveness between the two of us, but I think we, we could say we had some good things we liked about all three films to some degree. So with that, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hit a couple of movie news items, and then we'll end up the show with our recommendations of the episode. So you're listening to Foot Candle Films. Stay tuned. Local authors, illustrators, and storytellers come together to create Storytime Station at The Mesh. Storytime Station is a video podcast that works as a virtual storybook. Each show features a new children's book and new reader. So gather the whole family to listen, learn, and laugh at Storytime Station on TheMesh.TV.
Welcome back to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. Just a quick reminder before we uh, get into some movie news is that you are listening to this show on TheMesh.TV, which is a podcast network. What that means is it's a series of audio and some video programs that are put out on a regular basis and you can listen to on demand and you can also subscribe to the shows. And we do encourage you to check that out. Go to TheMesh.TV if you're not there already. Uh, you can look up any of the shows we have on the network. This is one of the shows we put out an episode maybe a couple times a month. And you can choose to subscribe to our show, which means every time we put out a new episode, it will be downloaded to your computer or mobile device wherever you set that up. So the idea is that you don't have to come looking for us to find a new episode. You've seen some movies. You want to hear what we have to say about it. Just wait. The episode will download automatically into your podcast reader. Like magic. Like magic. You don't have to do anything. Uh, it's a lot better than going and searching on our website every time we put out a new episode. So we do encourage that. And if you've got any feedback or thoughts for us, we'd love to hear from you as well. We'll give you some other notes at the end of the show about ways you can connect with us. So, Chris, let's jump into some movie news. And, uh, you know, you and I both kind of comb the Internet and put our ear to the ground, see if there's some interesting topics we want to talk about. Um, before we talk about anything movie related, I want to talk about one a news item that is more technology related but directly impacts movie-going experiences. I don't want VR. <laughs> no, no, no VR. Uh, Sean Parker, Parker, who you may recall was the guy who started Napster. Napster. Yeah. He was played by Justin Timberlake in the uh, social network, JT. Facebook movie, JT. So Sean Parker's new endeavor is called The Screening Room. And I don't know if you've heard about this or not. I don't know. If I Here's have. the idea. Oh, okay. Yeah. Releases right to the... Okay. Mm-hmm. Continue. Yeah, yeah. For a... $150 device that you buy. Oh, not 150 a, bucks. Not a website. You buy the device. device. Okay. And then you pay $50 for a brand new movie the day it comes out in the movie theater to also be beamed to this device and you can watch it for up to 48 hours. So here's here's the example. Imagine you, okay, unfortunately viewers you can't see my face. Yeah, your face looks puzzled. Let me explain. But have kind of like a WTF look. You buy on my this face. device, you buy this box, it's almost like a receiver box. You hook it up to your TV. So Batman versus Superman comes out. And it's at the movie theater and it premieres whatever Friday, March, whatever date. Right. That night, that same night, you could say, "Yep, I want to pay 50 bucks to watch Batman versus Superman on my big 65-inch TV at home with nice surround sound." Now, you may be saying to yourself, $50, but I can pay 9 or $10 and go see it at the movie theater. Yeah, but you can also pack your entire family into the living room to watch it for 50 bucks. So, you're shaking your no. head vehemently, shaking your Dude, head. Dude, I, I already have an Apple TV. Yeah, I, but it doesn't get brand new movies. Uh, like... It first doesn't. Those same movies? those same movies already go to the movie theater, and it does get some first run of movies some. that we have we have seen and we have talked about on the show where they release them to iTunes. Mm. We de- we can rent them for five bucks and watch them at home on our big TVs. But I'm Batman sorry. versus Superman. I'm just using that example because I think that one starts in the next week or so. And that's the one they're giving sure, as an example. Sure, I, you know, you're not going to get on iTunes for at least four or five more months. You know, uh, it's going to be at the movie theater for the first six weeks. I don't, there's, I'm not willing to. If it was, unfortunately, he's passed away. If Stanley Kubrick was doing it, absolutely, it okay, would be so worth you're, fifty dollars. You're, you're, you're arguing it more from a personal preference of the kind of movies you would want to absolutely. see. Absolutely, there's no movie that's going to come out that I'm going to pay fifty dollars for. See, I'm thinking of a way to make no. money off of this. Okay, 
you pay 50 bucks, but then you call all your friends and say, hey, dudes, come on over. 12 of you come over, pay me five bucks each. You made a little bit of money off of it. I kind of joke about that, but I mean, that's the idea. You do start doing the math, Chris. Here's the thing I'm looking at. If if I I did did want to see Batman versus Superman, and I've got two boys at home, and they may have a friend or two over that night to spend the night. Then and it's, we're like, you know it's what? It's cheaper to do. Hey, yeah. why don't we watch first run movie? How cool is that, kids? That we're going to watch this movie instead of going to the movie theater and see it. Pay fifty bucks one time and get to watch it. And hey, if we want to watch it again the next morning, we can watch parts of it again for fifty bucks. I like that. From a, I've got kids. I can't always go out to the movie theater. Now the problem. I'm is, a cheapskate. Well, if it was fifteen bucks yeah. and I've already had to pay hundred and fifty dollars for this device, yeah. no. If I paid hundred and fifty dollars for the device. And had like a subscription service, where it's fifty dollars for like six months or something. Maybe, but like, yeah. too too expensive for my blood. Let's Interesting see. idea. Interesting. I, idea. I was I was simply playing devil's advocate to get us a good back and forth. I agree with you. I don't. I'm not interested in this service. If it's a film <laughs> that I'm going to go see in a big movie theater spectacle, I'm going to go pay the money to go see it at the theater with my kids. Most of the films I end up watching are not big budget big spectacle movies and I'm perfectly fine waiting until they come out on iTunes. So I'm with you on it right. in the films that my wife and I would go see. I'm totally fine waiting and just watching when they come out online to view. And plus if it's just my wife and I, we don't even be spending 20 bucks movie tickets anyway. So it's not really worth it. Right. So I'm with you. I just wanted to kind of have a little I, back and forth. I can see how some families, some people would say, or some guys who really want to see first run movies, but can't stand going to the movie theater or don't want to deal with it. I like the service being an option. It's not an option I plan to partake if it becomes Yeah, to me, it just seems like it's a very niche, niche option. Well, what I would be excited about Mm -hmm. is if major studios, because the number of, you know, a lot of people have stopped going to the theater. That's why they started doing, you know, Big D and 3D and all this other ridiculous stuff Mm -hmm. to try to get you to go is because they've tried to figure out a way to pull you in because, yeah, everybody can watch it at home. I get that. And I'm excited about the whole iTunes model because you can pay $5 to see you and I both watched Ex Machina. Yeah. Actually, I did get to see that in the theater, but that's one where it was kind of, you know, it wasn't there for very long. I didn't get to see it in the movie theater, but I did wait and paid five bucks to see it online. And it was great. Right. And so it's like, you know, the smaller art house films will be released and, you know, get them through iTunes. If I could pay a little more and see them through screening Mm -hmm. room and paid maybe... Ten maybe the price if the same price I would pay it at the movie theater. So pay ten dollars yeah. to see it opening night. Pay ten dollars to see, you know, X Machina or something like that at home. Would I do it? Probably. Well, but I understand so, from a business standpoint, they got to balance the fact that if you got a family of four or five and you're right. packing yourself in your room uh, for ten bucks, it's like okay, I can understand them wanting to pay charge you more. And but having it the forty eight hour period, I think is kind of cool because think about it. Yeah, you watch a big movie on Friday night with your family, you're like. Oh, that was really, really good. And you want to watch parts of it again on Saturday or even Sunday. Right. You could do that and not the pay anymore. So would I be in favor of it if it was twenty five bucks? Yeah. I'd Maybe. pay I'd buy the hundred and fifty dollar box and have it around for those movies that I really do want to see when it first comes out. And I know that my family would also want to see. It would work. But for just movies I want to see personally, but the rest of my family doesn't care to see, I'd rather just go to the movie theater and go watch it with a with a crowd. So I think there's some opportunities, but I mean, we are talking about things moving in a direction of right. getting new movies into people's living rooms the night they're released. I will say Steven Spielberg, Peter Jackson, J.J. Abrams, Martin Scorsese, all in favor of this. Really? 
Yep. And you're saying the first one that's going to be done is the Superman. Batman. No, I, no, okay. this is still just in the this this is oh, an okay. early company. They have not. They're nowhere uh, close to releasing okay. this. These filmmakers are in favor of it. No, the the product hasn't come out. They're still in the funding category. It'll be a while before it happens. If it happens, hmm. what they're saying is that they will pay the movie theater twenty dollars of that fifty dollar fee. The movie theater chains will get that. So in other words, even though you're buying a fifty dollar ticket at home, movie theaters to get their support on this, so they don't put up a huge fight, mm-hmm. they're going to get some cut of the money. Is what they're proposing on this. You know, now the one guy who has come up and said this is a horrible, horrible idea, um, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> so Christopher Nolan does not like this idea. I would expect him to yeah. say that. Yeah. But I think everybody else is seeing that this is probably where things are going. So let's go ahead and support something that still pays theaters, pays distributors. Everybody still gets a cut of the pie. But yeah, we can cater to those audiences that aren't coming to the movie theater. Let anyway. me let me throw this back. See, I I'm totally I, I like having that as an option. You know, just like we have iTunes currently as an option. But I, I'm with Christopher Nolan on this. Mm-hmm. I really think keeping something communal other than sporting events, if you if you can keep movies communal to start off with. Mm-hmm. Then if you miss them and you want to see them at home on Netflix or if you want to rent them on iTunes or if you want to buy the DVD, that's great. But the reason why is it actually goes back to a review we just did with Brooklyn. Uh, we saw Brooklyn in the theater with our film society, and I liked it. But one of the things I enjoyed was you know, it was okay. But one of the things I specifically enjoyed was there's a part in the movie, which I, you know, I mentioned there was this choice that she had chosen not to reveal a piece of information. She opens this drawer, and you see these letters that um, have been written to her. And the audible, like, like the this, whole audience this was very like, discussed. Like, yeah. It was as awesome as when you go see Bridesmaids and everybody in the theater is like laughing like crazy. Yeah. The audible, like, g- gasp of like disgust or disappointment in her character. Like, you don't get that sitting at home with like three or four people. Like, yeah. that but, kind of communal experience was so, and that, like, it made me smile. And, like, man, am I glad I saw this movie in the theater. True. But I could argue that I could have that same experience if I said, you know what, every other Friday I'm going to invite a dozen of my friends over. We're going to go into my living room and watch a brand new movie that's coming out that same night. I can still get that same communal experience with my friends. I think where the challenge becomes is then, you know, I I look at it from a technical standpoint. I don't have the size screen or sound system that would really give me the best viewing experience for first run movies. So do I really want to watch a sub par level performance of it, you know, in my own home or am I willing to go travel the five miles down the road to go see it at the movie theater? So I think it's good that there's options that they're an option to considering. It's not an option. I would probably partake on anytime real soon because I still enjoy going to the movie theater. I just do. I enjoy the trailers. I enjoy the popcorn. I enjoy the, communal experience yeah just the idea does not appeal to me i could see it could be a very niche product when you first started describing it and i didn't know the price of the rental price a 50 dollars rental price i was like wow that's gonna be amazing that means you know all these movies will come and i won't have to wait for itunes to get them it'll be like itunes even better but no not really yeah okay well that was my one kind of more technical uh, business side update. You've got a news item. I, I do, and it's going to be kind of a unique one, kind of like that one was, but okay. on a different thing. Alan, you are the casting director for 
you, your, your job, and you have to do it right now. I'm mm-hmm. going to read you off the list of names, and it has to be one of these names okay. for young Han Solo. Ah. Okay? Yes. You ready? You have to choose okay, one good. of these. Okay, can we, send them to me. Good. Because right now this is being done. Supposedly he may have a cameo in Rogue One that is actually, I think, filming right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have, if they're going to fit that little cameo in there somewhere, they got to go ahead and cast this dude. So when they do the kind of standalone thing for young Han Solo later. Nothing like time pressure uh, casting, but yes, yeah, right. correct. So Alan, casting director, here we go. Okay. okay. Your choices are Miles Teller. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ansel Eggert, who was in Fault in Your Stars, which you haven't seen that. No, I have not. Uh, Dave Franco, who you didn't like him or the movie Now You See Me, but uh, he was in that. <laughs> he played. Oh, yeah. Yeah, That's you didn't right. like the, the magic. Mm. Um, Scott Eastwood, Jack mm. Raynor, who was in Transformers Age of Extinction, which you Never probably saw that haven't one. seen that. Um, and th- those are your options. So Scott Eastwood, which he's in Suicide Squad. He was in Gran Torino. I haven't seen Suicide Squad. Miles Teller would be my first Miles choice Teller. out of all of those because okay. I just think he's a really good actor. And I think okay. he can play smarmy and smartass and all that really well. Now, there's a name that I've heard okay. that you don't have on your list. I don't. And it's actually the one I would totally pick to be Over right Miles Teller. Yep. Okay. Who is it? Uh, of course, I can't pronounce his name, but uh, uh-huh. the Hell Caesar kid. Uh, yeah. In- Enric? El- Elric? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have not seen him play a cocky, arrogant guy, but yeah, I, I just like him enough, the sense of humor, but, but I yeah. like him enough okay. already that I would want to see him try out for the role. And his name has been batted around to somebody else too. Okay. Uh, of that list you gave me though, I think Miles Teller, Miles only because Teller. of all the people who I've seen act, he's been the best actor. I thought, I've seen him play smart aleck. I thought he was really good in the spectacular. Spectacular now, now yeah. Um, he wasn't a smart aleck in Whiplash, but he was really good as uh, acting. So, I would choose him. He doesn't look anything like Han Solo, you know, in the face or a man. But there again, I, I think Hollywood's kind of gotten away from this idea that we have to make the characters look exactly like their older counterparts. So, right. Uh, I'd say Miles Teller. Who who were you going to go for on that list? I, you you know, I probably for? I probably would have gone for a. Uh, Miles Teller. The guy from Fault in Our Stars is really good, mm-hmm. but the the sense of humor, basically I see it kind of like Han Solo coming from a spectacular now. So mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of like, you know, he was funny, he's charming, but he's a little kind of troubled in some ways. Like, I, I don't know. I just, I'm right there. So Alden Ehrenreich, maybe is how you say the guy's yeah. name, that played Hobie Doyle. Yeah, Hobie Doyle. It's a lot Doyle. easier to mm-hmm. say his character name right. <laughs> from Hail Caesar. No, if if it is between, if I gave you that option... Then yeah, I think you'd choose it, and so would I. So well, I just think it'd be it. interesting because I really liked I liked him a lot in Hail Caesar, and I, I want to see him do something else. Okay, do I want to see him jump to a big blockbuster franchise character right away? Maybe not. Sure. Maybe I'd rather him do a few other films before he gets settled into something like that. So from that purpose, maybe Miles Teller is the best fit because Miles Teller has had several starring roles in films. He did the whole Fantastic Four thing that didn't turn out too well for him. He did, but um. Side note, mm-hmm. um, since we're talking about um, Miles Teller and Ansel Eggort, who is in Fault in Our Stars, but both of those guys, talking about a series that didn't work other than Fantastic Four, stars my girl, Shailene Woodley, the mm. whole, like... Um, Allegiant. Uh, Allegiant. A, yeah, what? it was... Um, God, Divergent. New, Divergent. Yeah, the yeah, Divergent series. Right. I saw Divergent. I saw the first one. Didn't see the second one. The third one is now. It's kind of like in a weird way. They're up to a third one now? Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow, okay. I mean, it's like Insurgents was the second one. And then the third one, I think, is called Allegiance. And I think it's out now. Yeah. Um, Man, 
Is it getting trashed? Like Hunger really? Games took a while to get that far. And this is basically kind of a Hunger Games ripoff. Yeah. The first movie, Divergent, wasn't that great, but it was kind of eh. Second movie supposedly was horrible. The third movie, even worse. And I can't wow. believe it has like good actors and stuff in it because both Miles Teller, mm-hmm. Shailene Woodley, and the Ansel dude from Fault in all three of them are in those Interesting. movies. I have not seen any Terrible. of those. So I couldn't, couldn't attest to it either, <laughs> either direction on those. Well, since you brought up a character played by Han Solo or Harrison Ford. Let me bring up another character brought up, uh, played by Han, by Harrison Ford. Okay, I'm getting tongue tied here. A lot of H's in those sentences and <laughs> names. Um, so they have announced a fifth Indiana Jones movie, and it will be Harrison Ford. Which I do say, okay, at least it's Harrison Ford and not going the Chris Pratt or oh my gosh Shia LaBeouf route. <laughs> Um, supposedly, supposedly both Spielberg and Harrison Ford hate Shia LaBeouf, so he will not be involved in the project. Really? You know, another person who is rumored not to be involved in this project. Yeah. Uh, think about who got booted out of the process for star Wars episode seven, George Lucas, George Lucas wrote the story for all the other Indiana Jones movies. He didn't Including Crystal Skull? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'd forgotten that. He, now, he didn't direct them. Spielberg directed all four movies. But they were all based off of stories by George Lucas. Well, guess who's not involved in the story process anymore for the fifth Indiana Jones? Mr. George Lucas. So, purge George Lucas. Purge the buff, Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> and if you're going to make... Come on, come on. He was not the problem with that movie. Oh, no, 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 no. He wasn't the problem. He, was he didn't help problem. it, but he was not the problem. <laughs> no, I really think it was just... I don't think it was poorly directed. I just think the story was really weak. And just the ending especially. Yeah, just the yeah. whole last... Oh, yeah. The less said about that, the better. <laughs> the movie actually had me to some degree until they got to swing through the jungle like a monkey. And the whole... Giant sp- ants? Well, no. The ants I liked. I didn't like the whole spaceship ending thing, mm. you know. Right. The whole way it all kind of came together at the end just didn't work. Right. But they did say July 19th, 2019 wow. is going to be the fifth Indiana Jones movie. Um, Harrison Ford will be, I think I read somewhere. So how old was he going to be in 2019? It was like almost 70, I believe, at that point. Hmm. Uh, of course, Spielberg will be about that same age, too. I think they're about the same age. Okay. So they're both going to be in their upper 60s, I think, when this film is done, 2019. So we'll see. How do you feel about the fact that they're continuing with Harrison Ford and not trying to go with a reboot, younger character, younger version? Oh, I, I feel fine. You're okay um, with that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you I, don't think Harrison Ford was the problem in the Crystal Skull? No, no, okay. no, 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 no. You really think it was... For somebody as iconic, it'd just be like having somebody else play... Han Solo in the Star Wars movie that just came out. Why would they do that? You know, but going to do like a pre Star Wars yeah. thing with like a young, that's totally different. If so if they were making this a young Indiana Jones movie, that's one thing, you know, right. you, you got to have a younger character. I mean, that's right. what they did with river Phoenix in the uh, beginning of the last crusade. Right. I'm with you. If it's going to be a prequel. Yeah. You got to, obviously you got to go with a younger actor and somebody recasting it. But if you're going to continue with the same character, don't change it up. Now, Obviously, James Bond, they took a whole different strategy after Sean Connery left and said, this is a franchise. We're okay with every few films. We're going to change it up. Sure. It's okay. We are basically saying we are okay with multiple people playing this. I think Indiana Jones, though, is one that I just – I don't think you can do that same model with and have the same results. I think it's got to be Harrison Ford or nothing. I think if they had established – 
you know, if they've been made, if there were, how many Bond movies are there? There's like 20. Okay. If there were 20 here, if there were 20 Indiana Jones movies, then yeah, it would have been fine because they could have changed it out a couple of times. But to, to have it be installments that you only get every so once in a while, then I think. Well, let's, let's put it this way too. I think every other Bond that there's been, the reason that they change to somebody else is either A, that actor doesn't want to play Bond anymore. Or they got to keep them the Or the they were age. really not well connected with the audience, so they had to change it up. Gotcha. Harrison Ford is neither of those. Supposedly, Harrison <laughs> Ford made a deal to be in Episode 7 of Star Wars on the condition that he gets to do a fifth Indiana Jones film. So he actually really wants to do this film. Really? And the audience obviously wants Harrison Ford to play Indiana Jones. Oh, yeah. So if everybody's on Ford with it, you got to keep it going. Until he's no longer with us and right. or, or not physically able to play the part anymore. Sure. Now, Harrison Ford becomes too old or, God forbid, passes away, and they want to do another Indiana Jones movie. I'm okay with them rebooting it with a new person. Right. Because I like this whole serial adventure-based film series. Right. But while Harrison Ford's still alive, kicking and can do the part, and people <laughs> want him to do it, I say he keeps doing it. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. I'm with you on that. You got any other news items for us? Uh, no, but along the same vein, we talked a little bit about off-air Ghostbusters. Oh, right. Because it kind of so, comes into that rebooting a franchise. and what You were commenting like. about how you saw the trailer for Ghostbusters and you were not impressed. No, we talked about how they were going to be Paul Feig and they yes. were going to use an all-female, all-female cast. cast. And Kristen some, Wiig. Um, Melissa McCarthy. Uh, Melissa McCarthy. Um, right. A girl from Saturday Night Live. I'm drawing a blank on I can't believe I'm doing that because she's one of my favorites right now. Oh. Hmm. <sighs> I don't remember. It'll hit me in a Have second. you seen the trailer? Yes, I have. Okay. Yeah, I saw when I went to go see Tim um, Cloverfield Lane, I saw it, and I just, yeah. I think, here's my take on it. I, 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 unless I, I hear Feig, otherwise, mm-hmm. I'm going to skip it. <laughs> I will see it um, only because I'm okay, I'm okay with them wanting to give it another shot. Kate McKinnon. That's the one okay. I'm thinking. That's the other one. And I do think Kristen Wiig, Kate McKinnon are funny. I do like their humor in general, especially Kate McKinnon. She's actually the one I'm excited about. Really? Yeah. I, um, hmm. Kristen Wiig is getting to be a little played out with her style and Melissa McCartney's very hit or miss for me, but I do think Kate McKinnon is hilarious in Saturday Night Live. And if she can translate that to a big feature starring role, I'm all for it. Okay. And Paul Fig, I, I do think Bridesmaids was a well done comedy. And I think he really made the most out of what could have been a very, very conventional comedy. He, he put a little bit more into it. Right. The trailer, I don't think, is a very good trailer. The humor in the trailer is very forced, and a lot of the humor uh, quotes of things that you've always heard in horror films. Oh, that's going to leave a mark. Um, <laughs> you know, there's so many things that just it's, it's very cliche humor. Right. I will say the thing I thought that looked really cool in the trailer, I thought some of the ghosts looked pretty impressive. Like, I don't know, just the, the the CG and the glowing effect on the the ghosts look pretty creepy. Hmm. So I am on board with that. If they can make it a good mix of scary along with the film, Did I'm you all see for it, that. This is just interesting for me to ask because I want to see what your answer is. Uh, did you see it for the first time online or in the theater? Online. Because I had not seen it online. Okay. And I saw, it saw in the, the theater. In the theater. And I thought some of those very same effects. I was like, eh. Like. Maybe seen big. Maybe, but I've seen it in the movie theater since then. I saw it before uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. No, the trailer's not very good. It's not a good trailer. It did not put a lot of confidence in me in the film, but I'm still willing to give it a shot. Okay. Um, Here's the thing that confused me. My understanding all along is that this was not a sequel 
to the original Ghostbusters films. But yet at the beginning of the trailer, it says 30 years ago, four scientists, which granted one of the scientists was not really a scientist. True. Um, you know, he joined the crew later right. uh, as a business, as an employment thing, not as a scientist, but whatever. I'm being nitpicky. <laughs> um, 30 years ago, these guys saved the city and now there's a new team or whatever. So it does make it sound like they're acknowledging that there was a Ghostbusters team. 30 years ago. Yeah, that kind of took me by surprise, too. I had thought all along that this was like supposed to be a fresh start, like a brand new reboot of it. But now if that's the case, and it is going to be a 30-year-old sequel, I do know that there are supposed to be cameos by the original Ghostbusters and in there. And those sound very cringe. I mean, I, I don't, don't even, want it. It sounds cringe. If they're going to acknowledge that there were Ghostbusters 30 years ago, then you got to have these guys coming back playing their original parts in the, in the cameos. Everything I've heard, though, is that they're going to be playing like random characters in the movie, not playing their old characters. I'm like, well, then that's stupid. I mean, why would you do that if you're going to acknowledge that there were Ghostbusters 30 years ago, but you don't want to show these guys anymore? Anyway, yeah, it, I'm very conflicted. I'm still willing to give it a shot. See, I'm not conflicted. I'm not willing to give it You're a shot. You're not interested. <laughs> no. Right. No. no. Fair Sadly, enough. no. Fair enough. Let's move on to our recommendations to close out your show. How about we do that? Sounds fair. Great. Chris, I'll let you go first. What film would you like to recommend everybody they consider or check out if they have the chance? I am going to recommend a film that on IMDb only has five stars out of ten. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this movie has not been given a fair shot, maybe. Um, but you'll have to see it and uh, see for yourselves. Uh, it's Don Verdine. And mm, it's, a okay. com- it's a comedy, but Sam Rockwell, Amy Ryan, Jermaine Clement, Will Forte, Danny McBride. Wow. So you've kind of got... A lot of people. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a rock star cast. Now... Is directed by Jared Hess. Okay, now this Napoleon is Napoleon Dynamite. Napoleon Dynamite, Nacho Libre. Okay, uh, shall I go on? Because their other films are even worse than that. <laughs> but so that's kind of a question mark. There, he mm-hmm. he directed a movie that has not yet come out called Masterminds. Oh Zach Galifianakis, Kristen Wiig, Owen Wilson. That's right. That movie never came no, out. It was supposed to come out in 2015 and didn't mysteriously. I thought it was just going to be dumped to DVD or dumped to VOD now, but apparently is now slated to come out in 2016. Not sure when. Weird. This film was also made in 2015, but did actually get released. Uh, it's, what it, the premise vaguely is that uh, Sam Rockwell is a self-professed biblical archaeologist, mm-hmm. and he's fallen on hard times and starts to bend the truth in finding artifacts. Okay, mm-hmm. um, but it's so it it's funny, but it has some questions that it kind of deals with about you know what are you willing to sacrifice as far as like morally and stuff like that. So, but it never gets too heavy. It's funny. Is it a perfect film? No. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, some of the things that happened in the last, you know, kind of like Cloverfield, some of the things that happened in the last five or 10, you're kind of like, really? Mm. But um, there are enough jokes. And Jemaine Clement, I really like him, Fly of the Concords. Yeah. Um, and he plays Boaz, who's kind of an assistant to mm-hmm. Sam Rockwell in this. And I, I, every time he's on screen, he makes me laugh. Um, and that's Will, kind of his deal anyway. I think he's just a funny guy. He's just anyway. a funny guy, yeah. Will Forte plays a really small part as kind of a really sleazy kind of evangelist type dude. Mm-hmm. But some of the stuff that he does is 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 really funny. So it's streaming on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I believe it's also available on iTunes. I think it's worth checking out. Okay, so, Don, Don Verdine. Verdine. Yeah. Speaking of Jermaine Clement, did you ever see uh, People, Places, and Things? I did. It was pretty did. good. I did, yeah. yeah. yeah I it was actually it. surprising good. I mean, And I think, there again, that movie, 
we were talking about how, like, in general, like, romantic comedies or period pieces are kind of like, eh, you know, just a romantic comedy that's kind of centered around a guy struggling, trying to go get dating again. Like, I would not be interested in right. all. Saw Jemaine Clement was in it. Well, like, that's the same Okay, yeah. I'll see that. And I liked it. It was fun. And he is good. what makes that, you know, better than the average romantic comedy I agree. to me. I agree with that. Um, all right, so my recommendation, and I know you can rent it on Amazon Video. I'm sure on iTunes as well. I don't think it's available on Netflix or anywhere like free streaming. I say free. I know Netflix costs money, but I kind of feel like it's free as cheap as it is. Right. Um, uh, I'm a big Scorsese fan. Okay. Uh, you know, Goodfellas is still one of my top five films of all time. I found some good redeeming qualities in Wolf of Wall Street, <sighs> even Wall though Street. you did not, Chris. Um, overall, I really like Scorsese's films. I even like some of his films that are probably not as well regarded. Age of Innocence, I think, is a really good film. Mm. The Aviator, I really, really liked when it came out. So I'm just trying to find some some blind spots in my Scorsese filmography. And The King of Comedy was one of those, okay. uh, Robert De Niro. And I finally got a chance to catch up with that the other night. I was more intrigued by the film than anything. I just... Showbiz films are pretty intriguing to me to begin with, especially stand-up comedy. I just something about the art of stand-up comedy to me is just a goldmine for good film film stories. And this one plays with that. Have you seen it? I have. It's been a while, but okay. one of the odder things to me, because he was never a star during my lifetime that I'm really yeah. aware of, right. uh, was Jerry Lewis. Yeah, he plays like the Johnny Carson character. He is the comic, you okay. know. That's the world famous comic. Although he's not a funny guy. I mean, it's a very Dark. straight. Well, it, it's a very serious role. He plays a very kind of grumpy. You know, he's trying to run away from the spotlight a little bit more mm. than than what you would expect. Where. Robert De Niro plays uh, Rupert Pupkin, who is wanting the celebrity so bad. So bad he's basically stalking the guy and gets a little obsessive about it. Right. The film was pretty good. I mean, to use a cliche we heard from another podcast, it's minor Scorsese, but it's still pretty good. I think the thing that's the most interesting about this film, though, is as I'm watching it, and this was back in, you know, 81, 82? Yeah, 82. Um. It's this whole idea that Rupert Pupkin believes that he's entitled to be a star. Mm. Like, I'm a star. I have star-like qualities. You should make me a star. I'm going to show up at your office, and I'm going to give you a tape. And you should listen to that tape today. And I should be on your, your Tonight Show tonight because I'm a celebrity and I'm that good. It's something like if only Last Comic had standing or some of the reality TV show existed. Well, it's that, but it's also, to me, a precursor of what was to come 20, 30 years ago, which is where we are now, Sure, this whole celebrity-infused society where everybody feels like, well, as long as I've got a video camera and a YouTube channel, I'm going to be a star. I'm going to be a celebrity. Right. And so it really made me think a lot about the nature of uh, society's relationship with celebrity status. I think back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, people viewed movie stars as somebody completely far away from who they were. Mm-hmm. You worshipped these stars, but you never thought of yourself as being one right. along with them. It's like, oh, well, you know, John Wayne, he's just this way up on this pedestal and Clark Gable and all these other big actors. I think when we get to the 70s and 80s, and this is where this film starts to catch in, people start thinking, wait a minute, I could be a star I too. That. I could right. totally do that. Right. We get more independent film. We get more smaller film. Yes, a lot of people became actors in films that wouldn't have been actors back in the old studio system back in the 40s and 50s. So this is like hitting at that time where people are starting to tell themselves, yeah, I could totally be a star. 
now we're in a society where if somebody gets on the internet and with a video camera and makes themselves a star. It's not a matter of I want to be a star anymore. It's I'm just going to be a star like tomorrow. <laughs> sure. So I think it's just interesting to kind of catch it during this time period. But thinking about that in terms of early 80s, um, what I thought was also really, really fascinating about the film is that we get to know Rupert Pupkin as a aspiring comic, but we never once hear him say a joke or anything funny until the last 10 minutes of the film. So the whole film, you're just like, okay, obviously this guy's not funny because he hasn't really said anything funny the whole time. He's obsessive. He's a little neurotic. He's a little over the top. He's annoying, but he's not funny. So when you finally get a point at the end where through some uh, a strange circumstances, he actually gets to do his comedy bit on the equivalent of The Tonight Show in this, in this movie, you're expecting it to be just horrible. And it's pretty funny. So you're just like, at the end of the day, you're like, okay, so the guy actually was kind of funny. <laughs> and, you know, you kind of question the whole film. It's like, well, should they have given him a better, more of a shot to prove this? Because he actually turned out to be kind of funny at the end of the film. <laughs> anyway, it's just, it was an interesting film. I thought more about its impact on society and what it says about society than I did about the film itself. It's a very small Scorsese film. It was a uh, much less visually impactful film. It just didn't have that same Scorsese touch of music and editing the music and fast shots and all or quicker cuts but it was a good film and uh it had a few uh, his basement little mini studio he made for himself i thought was kind of an interesting visual as well so Hmm. i thought it was good it did make me lament where in the world is robert de niro now why is he making films like dirty grandpa when (laughs) scorsese is still making good films these days so why those two are not good stuff out of de niro well why or why doesn't de niro do any more work with scorsese he's doing the film the best films de niro is doing right now are the ones with uh david o russell Mm -hmm. that's his best performances he's giving the last few years except for joy not a good film you and i haven't talked about joy yet i did see joy (laughs) i had no joy in joy um i found some joy in joy um (laughs) so I think De Niro is doing his best work right now with David O. Russell. Agreed. But it's not that it's it's not Scorsese level work. Right. It's just it's the best stuff he's doing right now. Why doesn't Scorsese put him as a supporting character in any of his current movies, even if DiCaprio is the main star? Don't know. Did they have a falling out? Are they okay? I don't. <laughs> I don't I'm just know. a little worried about him. We should so. find out. Yeah, yeah we I don't should. Know. So that's the King of Comedy, 1982. Robert De Niro. It's worth seeing. I think because if you're a Scorsese completist, you need to see it. But also because if, if you're really fascinated by the impact of celebrity status and achieving celebrity status, this has an interesting take on it. So, I agree. Yeah. All right. So that is our show to talk about. Uh, we had our recommendations, people, things, uh, Don Verdeen and the King of Comedy. We had three reviews, 10 Cloverfield Lane, Brooklyn and the Danish Girl, and then some movie news items that all seem to be related to Harrison Ford, I think, or pretty close to it. <laughs> So with that, Chris, we're going to wrap up the show. If people wanted to get a hold of us or give us some feedback or anything else, how would they go about doing so? Uh, best way to do it is send an email to info at themesh.tv and let us know what you like, don't like, a review you agree or disagree with, or something you want us to review. You can also follow Alan and I on Letterboxd, and we'll do movie reviews from time to time, or at least keep kind of a running list of the movies we have been watching. And also there's the main website for the podcast, which is TheMesh.tv, and that has not only our podcast, but other podcasts on 
various and sundry different things. So if you like our podcast, awesome, but you might want to check out some others that are on the mesh.tv website. And as well, we do are going to be doing our film festival again in September of 2016. So you little details about that are on Mm -hmm. um, footcandle.org and that'll get you to the main film festival site as well. Perfect. Yeah. We are excited about the film festival. It's going to be another good time come this September. So we're looking forward to that. And, um, yeah, we do encourage you to get a hold of us and contact us and let us know thoughts or feedback on the show or any of our past episodes as well. So with that, we're going to wrap up. We've got another episode coming out before too long. We'll be reviewing some more films and uh, sharing some other movie news. And, again, check us out on TheMesh.TV and uh, check out some old episodes, especially if it's a film that you do catch up with and you see that we reviewed it. It's always good to go back and listen and uh, see if we – we, uh, we echo your opinions or not. It's always kind of a fun <laughs> game to play. All right. So thanks a lot, everybody. We appreciate you tuning in. We'll talk to you next time. See you in the ticket line. Special thanks to Carpal Toller for the show theme music. For more about Carpal Taller, visit www.carpaltaller.com. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard. All right, so here we are at the end of the show. Uh, we did say that we were going to talk about 10 Cloverfield Lane from a spoiler standpoint. Chess, do you have any problems with us saying anything about 10 Cloverfield Lane? Just do it. Sure. Okay. We've got a we've got a co-host for a podcast coming up in here. We didn't want to spoil it if he hadn't seen. Yeah, it. no, we don't want to don't want to mess it up too much here. But we did want to say with regards to the ending. Okay, so you got the whole movie. They're inside the bunker. First, um, tell me what the alternate ending is. I'm okay. dying to hear that. So the alternate ending, what I understood was the original written story ending. She makes it out of the bunker, mm-hmm. just like she did, getting away from the fire and everything else going on there. She gets out. Yep. There's no aliens. Okay. John Goodman also gets out. Okay. Chases her. And they actually end up in that old house. Interesting. And they either have a struggle or something like that, or basically she somehow gets away from him. And as she's driving off, he's basically like telling her, okay, fine. Good luck to you. You know? Yelling at her as she's driving away. Fine. Good luck. Hope you, hope you make it type of thing. And as she's driving away, she's driving towards, I guess, Chicago or whatever the big city nearby. She's coming close to the city. She does see off in the distance the city skyline burning with alien ships. It is an alien invasion. But that's more of an ending shot as opposed to the whole action sequence in the last 10 to 15 minutes. So John Goodman does carry through to the end, which that was my bug piece of it that bugged me. I loved what was going on so much in that bunker that when she got out of the bunker, it was almost like you could have just wiped that whole first 75 minutes just away. It didn't even exist anymore. Mm-hmm. It was like a brand new story, you know, for like the last 15 minutes. And that's why I didn't care for well, it. Well, okay. So I liked, okay. The fact that they felt like they had to link it to Cloverfield for whatever reason, 
in a way, I admire that because if there hadn't been anything Cloverfield-ish, if there hadn't been any aliens at all, no mm-hmm. monsters at all, then I kind of would have felt cheated that they bothered using that as a link. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they did have it in there, you know, after getting to the end of the movie, I was like, oh, I feel like that was really kind of tacked on. And if it had been done in the manner that you describe, then that would have made an excellent movie. I see. That's what I think, too. I Because like when fact- John Goodman mm-hmm. gets out of the bunker, because he actually gets up above ground and she sees him and then she takes the keys from him, I was kind of like, wait a second. But I was kind of happy in a way. Because I was like, well, good. It's not like one last death. You know how Jason's oh, yeah. already no, been stabbed and shot no, 15 yeah. I, million I, I times. That the, and all of a sudden he jumps up off the floor and you're like, what? I wouldn't have wanted that either. But I just hated the fact that the John Goodman character sure. is gone. I mean, he had no impact or bearing on the last 15 minutes of the film at all. Mm-hmm. Even though we followed his character the whole rest of the movie. Right. All that just wiped clean. Gone well, when and she I thought it was so interesting. Yeah, it's such a shame that it ended the way it did. Because... I felt like the aliens looked dumb. I mean, I they guess did. that's personal preference anyway. But then even what was happening to her, like trying to eat the car, and it just seemed very kind of cartoonish and stupid. And her throwing the bottle, and that was what... Yeah, like the lighter, kind of like the Bruce Willis type <sighs> thing. Like, that whole thing just seemed It was seemed disappointing. It was dumb. very disappointing. Yeah. To have a movie that didn't rely on CG or in all that for so long and be so effective, and then you've got this kind of crappy CG character, aliens, and... I just, I, I just wanted the, yeah. the storyline to continue. I mean, and, and the thing well, that, the one, the one thing that I was happy with, mm-hmm. which that's the thing, honestly, I did have a feeling that it was going to kind of go there mm-hmm. because it was like, okay, it's called Cloverfield. I bet, which it, which it did, but they was going to bother me because they never, if they hadn't have closed the loop with the gas. And that happening, then that would have bothered me because it's like oh, yeah. that woman being yeah, ran why up. Was like, she like that? But yeah. then they show that ship and it that does spray some stuff. And yeah. they're like, okay, they're at least trying to close loops. But if they had just left it, that she, you know, she's like, she gets out. She's like, finally, I've escaped this lunatic. And then she does. And what was really, what would have been really good about that, which I guess we can discuss that now in spoiler territory. He was a lunatic, correct? That's because there's a there's well, a girl there's yeah. a girl who Emmett says that's not his daughter right somebody scratched help me up on the thing no but that happens when does that See, happen that, does that happen after his wife and daughter leave or did that happen while he still had that's his wife why and the daughter? John Goodman character needed to kind of carry through to the end of the film because we need to kind of better understand that yeah. obviously he was both a, a, a creepy maniac. And he was right about building a bunker because there was an alien invasion. Right. We don't know the timetable. Like, we don't know. Did he abduct the other guy's sister before the alien invasion? I'm assuming so. And then she died before the alien no, wait, invasion. Man, whose ever. sister was it? Remember, it was uh, the Emmett's, the other guy in there. When he saw, that's my daughter. Or my, that's my sister. That was Emmett's sister. Yeah, but his sister went missing. And okay. the John Goodman character told Michelle... This is my daughter. Right, 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 right. So it's clear to me that he took Emmett's sister, okay, abducted her, and she died inside the bunker. Um, we assume because the earrings and, were still there, the shirt was still there. All yeah, that stuff. but obviously that all happened before the alien invasion because it happened before Michelle came to be at the bunker, right? And Michelle came to the bunker as the alien invasion was happening or before or right at, before it right before yeah so it's a little bit of that timing kind of throws you off and it's almost like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too they want him to be a creepy awful character at the end of the film but he was also right about the invasion well, see, and it just sort of that's happened. what I that's what yeah. to me that that's that's awesome because it's like no the guy did protect you but he's still 
a horrible person. I, like even yeah. a serial killer can decide to res- rescue somebody from an alien invasion. See, and I think that's why so if the film like, well, had ended okay. with her leaving the John Goodman character saying, you know what? I don't want to have anything to do with you because you're a nut job and you're scary right. and all that. Then it does become this whole, am I going out of the pan into the fire? Because right. here I'm driving to the city and the city's on fire right. and like under attack by aliens. Right. So he was right. But yet I'm leaving him where at least it was a controlled environment right. to go to this. Right. And I think that's where it lost it in the last 15 minutes because after she left the bunker, we start to completely forget about the John Goodman character, which is a shame. And that's where I think the, the film kind of fell apart for me. Something that makes is probably going to keep me up at night. This film's make, making a lot of money. It's doing pretty good. Doing a pretty good amount of money. There's no way a sequel could be good. But yet I feel like there's probably going to be one. I don't think they're going to make a sequel. I think they're going to make another film in the Cloverfield Trilogy family. family. Okay. And basically say these are all films about this alien invasion. It's just there's little splinter movies. You know, maybe the argument that, is, is that the big creature in the Cloverfield movie was something part, like this was also was happening. part of an invasion. And now over here in the cornfields. Was it Louisiana or somewhere? Like, I don't know. I couldn't quite. Okay. No, I think it was like outside of Chicago. Wasn't Chicago the big city that she was trying to go to at the end or no? Which city was she going to at the end of the film? Yeah. yeah she was driving to a big city. Oh, yeah, that's right. They say, like, Houston. Like resistance. It was Houston. Houston. So it was Texas. Right. Okay. So it's almost like, to me, if they're going to make these films, yeah, keep them in the Cloverfield family. Just make them other interesting stories that surround an alien invasion. It's just, again, I just felt like the change once she got out was very disappointing. Yeah, because they... It made Cloverfield feel tacked on, even yes. though obviously they meant to include it, meant to keep it in the whole universe the whole time, but it just felt really tacked on. Yeah, like uh, Chess is kind of saying like Band of Brothers. I mean, like that TV show, the, the HBO show, which was more about, it was around the war, but it was okay. different stories. Different stories, gotcha. You have a unifying event, this alien invasion, and you can tell a multitude of stories about characters that are fighting against it or suffering through it or whatever. I think it's an interesting concept for an umbrella of films like an anthology series of films. Mm-hmm. I don't want a, ser- a sequel off of 10 Cloverfield Lane. Agreed. Uh, now, if I see the Michelle character in another film as like a side character that, oh, hey, look, here's somebody who showed up to help us in this rescue effort or whatever. Okay, that's cool. You know, because we see her at the end of the film going and deciding to help with the resistance. If she shows up in another film, that's fine. But we don't need another what happened after 10 Cloverfield Lane and, you know, oh, the John Goodman character is actually not dead. You know, he got out of the bunker in just enough time or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't want a sequel. But if that one girl character does show up again, I'm okay with that. How about a prequel to 10 Cloverfield Lane where all it's doing is following John Goodman's character, <laughs> building the bunker and him getting paranoid and seeing aliens slowly like encroaching. It'd be interesting. I think that could be cool. It'd be very cool. Just because I like his character a lot. So. And then you can see backstory on what happened with the missing girl. Yeah. Yeah, that could be. All right. That's our spoiler discussion. So that's what we didn't like about 10 Cloverfield Lane. <laughs> but, but still worth checking out if you I like still think thriller it's a good type movie. I still think yeah. it's a good movie. Just, just be prepared for that last 15 minutes to come away a little bit disappointed with the way it ended. So... All right. Thank you. Bye.